Hello there, I'm Dr. Hacky Reitman, and you're listening to Exploring Different Brains. Welcome to Exploring Different Brains. We've got a treat for you today. My friend, Dr. Brian Udell, is with us. He's known as the Autism Doctor. Brian, how you doing? I'm doing great today, Hacky. Thank you for having me. So what's it like being the, the medical director of the Child Development Center of America? Well, about eight, eight years ago, I was doing the first autism clinic here in Broward County. And at that time, we were seeing about five children in a week. And um, I wasn't satisfied that the regular medical community, conventional medicine, was handling the problem okay. And I started my own practice with uh, zero patients. And in the last eight years, we've seen 2,000 children with developmental problems and about 1,000 children who have autism. So it's a busy practice, and uh, I, I don't mind if we ever get rid of it. <laughs> well, good for you. Now, <clears throat> you are the founder of the Pediatrics with an X, the Pediatrics Medical Group. Tell us about that. Yes, I, I was one of the founders. There were six of us, and uh, we were neonatologists that were went around the country starting neonatal units. And the thing that made us different was that we made a commitment to stay in-house. So what happened was uh, around uh, 20 years ago, it, the standard of care was that the doctor would come in from home. If there was a high-risk delivery, the pediatrician, the obstetrician, the nurses, everybody would come in from home. And that just wasn't enough time. So uh, my partners and I uh, sort of changed the paradigm by uh, being in-house. We started with a few practices here in Broward County. And when I left, there were 100 practices. And now they have 3,000 neonatologists all over the country. So it was a great change from what has been going on till now. Now, Brian, I'm going to be uh, speaking to the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons March 4th at the annual meetings of the AAOS in Orlando. And I'm very proud that this will be the first neurodiversity lectures. Uh, Dwight Burney and the good doctors there read the Aspertool's book. They agree there's a need to spread the word on uh, neurodiversity. And I thought what we would do is have me ask you, because you're a doctor, you're one of the few doctors who is in tune with neurodiversity, a doctor like me received no training in it. And what would you tell these orthopedic surgeons who are going to go into the various residencies and medical pro programs to pass on the word from this uh, patient uh, communication and skills group? What would you tell them, Brian? Well, I think it's quite frustrating time for patients who have neurodiversity that the doctors um, are not recognizing that there is this issue. And I think that when they ask questions, they really need to not expect the answers that they always got and they've always gotten. And they really need to read into what the patient is really saying. And for example, in, in <clears throat> most of my autistic patients, they can't even speak. So they, you really need to use a lot more of your clinical acumen to decide what's going on with the patient and your diagnostic capabilities rather than just relying on the words that the person is saying. Sometimes uh, people who are on the spectrum, sometimes people who have Asperger's or, or autism, when they do speak, they are very literal. And um, that 
won't help the doctor in his understanding of the problem. So they have to look beyond what they're just hearing and really uh, examine the patient very thoroughly, sometimes talk to someone in the family to get a better picture of what the history has been so that they can do a better job. A patient might be saying that their leg hurts and it, you're, you, and it would be very frustrating for a doctor who doesn't know whether it's their foot, their knee, or their hip. And, and so you really have to uh, explore in much more depth what the patient is, um, is complaining about other than just saying it's a leg problem. It's, it's very complicated for a patient who is neurodiverse um, to even understand their own body. So um, they're looking for help from the medical community, and the medical community has to learn how to help them in a very special way. And that means listening to what they say, doing a, but, but also doing a very thorough physical exam, and sometimes talking to somebody in the family to get a better picture of what's going on. Thank you. That was very well said. You know, in retrospect, now that I know what I know, I'm thinking back to before I knew, for instance, that many of these people whose brains are a bit different, such as autism, Asperger's, have hypersenses to sound, to touch, to feel, to temperature, to all these things. And I look back now and I think of, gee whiz, I thought that was just a, a poorly behaved child who was screaming when I was using the vibrating cast saw to take off the cast. And had I known more, I could have saved myself a lot of trouble and the patient too by maybe soaking off the plaster cast instead of using something like fiberglass. And I'm looking at the neurodiverse uh, patients who are among us that are unrecognized, the ones who don't have maybe the glaring labels and everything. And as you know better than I do, because you're the autism doctor and you're the pediatrician, and you know that so many of these parents whose children are neurodiverse are getting told, don't worry, he'll grow out of it. There's nothing to worry about. What can you say to help doctors in general who are treating the un, so far undiagnosed neurodiverse? What I've learned over the last eight years taking care of patients like this and reading all about it and, and um, doing the best I can to uh, understand the research is that it's a processing issue, that all of the patient's problems come from uh, uh, neurologic problems come from processing. They don't process right with speech. They don't process right with sensory issues. They not, might not process right um, with uh, uh, their socialization issues. So they, the best thing that the doctor can understand is they need to be approached with a lot of sensitivity towards that problem. They may hear something differently than we, we do. They, it may be louder. Um, they may feel things more than we do. Um, and even their inability to speak, again, in their central nervous system, we don't even understand yet why these children don't speak or why Asperger's children don't have a pro do have a problem um, with uh, uh, socialization. And, and things don't go through the brain in the neurotypical manner. And it's not, it, there's, no, uh, uh, there's no ill will that the patient is showing or, or 
inability. It's just that they don't see things the way that the doctor sees them. And the best thing they could do is just be really gentle and any patient to be really gentle and to try to understand that um, there, there is this neurodiverse universe and you might not be seeing exactly what you think you're seeing. The sensory processing, I can't uh, emphasize enough that the, you know that that noises can be louder, or they certain noises is of certain frequencies can just drive them crazy. Lights can drive them crazy, especially uh, doctors' offices have a lot of um, fluorescent lights. And fluorescent lights, a lot of children will exp- when they grow up, they'll explain that they can see the cycling of the fluorescent light, and it sometimes drives them crazy. In my office, for example. I have filters on all the lights so they don't have that problem. Um, their taste issues are very uh, interesting and different. And so the medicines that we think that we're going to give the children aren't taken very well. Um, the, it, it, we don't even think it has a taste. And to the child, it can have a very strong taste. So all of the senses are really affected. Um, smell, certain medicines can smell horrible. Certain doctor's offices you know, we uh, neurotypical people go into a doctor's office and smell that very special smell. And you can imagine how scary it is for a child who doesn't understand what they're going into um, to be met with that kind of uh, sensory onslaught. Brian, um, you're the autism doctor, and I'm going to be speaking also to the Special Care Dentistry Association at their annual meetings in Chicago in April. And can you give us some additional things that might be very specific to a dentist, to a dental office? Um, One of the things I was thinking of was maybe um, the preparation in maybe having the parents bring their child whose brain might be a bit different for kind of a dry run just to get used to the office. But can you think of things as you're the autism doctor uh, as you are, you are a pediatrician, that might be specific to dentists? Well, yeah, there are several things. One of the ways that we help children get better is by decreasing inflammation. So their dental health is very important to us. Um, you know, they, they, they rarely, they're very sensory in their oromotor cavity, very sensory. Some of them um, only eat two or three different kinds of foods, and usually they pick foods with a lot of sugar, um, and um, and not a lot of uh, texture to them. Um, and, and what happens is their teeth are generally not in very good shape. And the mother of a three- or four-year-old child, that child might never have seen a dentist, and they might have caries, you know, all throughout their teeth. And it's just as important to clear up the inflammation in their mouth as it is to clear up the inflammation in their gut or any other part of their body. So it's very important for these kids at a very young age to have a dental exam. And if it takes a slight amount of anesthesia to get... I would say that, you know, the child that's going to be scared in that situation may not be helped by a dry run. I mean, if they have very minor problems, a dry run would be a great idea. But a truly uh, uh, autistic child or 
or, or pretty affected uh, Asperger's child, um, they might uh, that fear might just stay with them. So um, one thing is that you find that they don't brush their teeth. They don't like they don't they don't let the mother brush their teeth, and they don't like to brush their teeth. One of the problems the mothers have is that the kids swallow the toothpaste, and they're afraid of the fluoride in the toothpaste toothpaste that the kid's going to swallow. So uh, my, my best uh, uh, advice to a, pedi- to a pediatric dentist or a dentist who takes care of children uh, uh, neurodiversity um, really is to give them something to calm them down on the way in. And I, am, I, I don't recommend medicines at all. I'm not, I'm not for a lot of medicines in people. I think the, the main way that we get our children better is by avoiding all the antibiotics and steroids and the medicines that can cause problems. On the other hand, this is such an important issue for me that I'll often give the children a small amount of Valium or chloral hydrate uh, just so they can get in the office and get the work done and get out of there. We're speaking with Dr. Brian Udell, the autism doctor. And uh, Brian, I wanted to ask you about comorbidity because I think people are under the mis apprehension that these things occur in isolation and they don't occur with overlapping other entities. You treat thousands and thousands of children with autism. What are you finding as the comorbid other diagnoses they might have? I'm not a big one for labels, but I want to know from your point of view, having so much experience what entities you're seeing overlapping to a significant degree? I had a child who came to see us straight from a neurologist office. Um, the mother didn't want to give, uh, I think it was Risperdal or a very strong drug because the kid was very, very disruptive, screaming all over the place. And nobody could look in the child's ear. When I looked in the child's ear, he had a roaring ear infection. He didn't need a Bilify. He needed an antibiotic. The most important thing that I see, 60, at least 60% of my patients have a gastrointestinal problem. And when you ask the mother a good, thorough history from the time they were born, they didn't suck very well, so the mother wasn't uh, uh, successful in, in breastfeeding. And then the child started eating, uh, taking formula, but they had a GE reflux. There's core tone. They have core tone hypotonia. They have low uh, tone in, in, in everything in their core, so the kids would get gastroesophageal reflux. The doctors nowadays give PPIs for the gastroesophageal reflux. We didn't even have PPIs 20 years ago for adults, let alone for children. Those, uh, uh, those proton pump inhibitors raise the pH and they make it difficult for the patient to absorb B12. So a lot of these kids will have vitamin deficiencies. Um, and then you go down the GI tract, there's this uh, entity called eosinic, eosinophilic esophagitis that a lot of the children have, and that's either a cause or a result of their chronic uh, gastroesophageal reflux. Um, and then down into the duodenum, you'll see a lot of uh, inflammation. And many of our children have uh, food allergies that are affecting their gut, and um, their, their, their downstream behavior is disruptive behavior and aggression, out of control, and it really can be ameliorated greatly by just understanding what's going on in the GI system and fixing that. I, I, I would say that is the 60% of my patients uh, present with that as their major problem. And then um, about... A, 
about 15 percent present with a a, a, um, a genetic problem, and it's 2016. And I tell all my uh, doctors to please get um, to please get chromosomes on the kid that you don't know what you're dealing with if you're dealing with a kid who has what's called a copy number variation, a very small one thousandth of an inch. A duplication, deletion, or translocation in their chromosome, and 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 the majority of the rest of the children have some problem, either primary or secondary to their gut problem with their immune system. So you take a history, and they had repeated ear infections, repeated uh, courses of antibiotics, rashes that everybody called eczema, with a lot of steroid treatment, and um, nobody is looking at the whole child. The whole child is one thing. It's not seven different diagnoses. And I usually tell my parents that if you've gone to more than five doctors and gotten more than 10 opinions, you ought to see somebody who knows children a little better. This is a good segue into the whole gut-brain issue. And give us your thoughts on the, the microbiome in the gut and how it affects the wiring in your brain. Well, you know, a, a lot of people I, m may not remember in the 1980s when we first learned that Helicobacter was the major cause of gastric ulcers. I remember people saying, do you believe in Helicobacter like it was a religion? Okay, when people ask today um, whether or not uh, we believe in the gut-brain uh, um, connection, that's missing the point entirely. Uh, Michael Gershon at, at, in Columbia ta start, first started writing about this in 1990. That's 25 years ago. That's enough time for us to sort of get a handle on this. We make statements like we have butterflies in our stomachs, you know, and we get when, whenever we're very uh, worried, we can get a headache. And if we eat bad food, um, we can't concentrate, and we can't study. So it's not that far a, a, a leap for people to understand that there is a gut-brain connection. In addition, it's already been shown that we have more neural cells in our gut than we actually have in our, in our brain. And so whatever could affect uh, the, uh, the, the brain is also affecting the gut and vice versa. So this idea that it's something to be believed in, or I don't know where you're going with that, is really old-fashioned. It's not whether it's right or wrong. It's just plain old-fashioned. As far as I'm concerned, the hip bone is connected to the leg bone. So you mean it's like climate change in the body? <laughs> it. You know, when I measure the children, the bacteria, when I, I do a, a test, a comprehensive stool test that's not available through the regular laboratories, LabCorp and Quest, but when I do this test, I find a lot of bacteria that don't belong there. Bacteria like Klebsiella and Pseudomonas and Citrobacter, that if they were in any other part of the body other than the gut, you would be in the hospital. Uh, and, and so to say that that's normal flora and, and is not necessarily a, a, a good idea. There, there's a lot of other children who can get better just from looking at the problem with their gut, looking at the problem with fungus in their gut. And, and, and I use a lot of antifungals. Um, I, I measure liver function very, uh, in a very detailed way to make sure that they won't have problem from, from that. But a lot of children get a lot better um, when they're given antifungals. And again, when you take a good history, they've had either diarrhea or constipation or alternating diarrhea and constipation practically their whole life. One of the first things I do to get the parent on my side is 
that the child takes a normal stool. The next thing that makes the parent get on my side is the child, a five, six, seven-year-old, finally gets toilet trained because they don't just have stool leaking out of their butt and, and they, and, and they uh, didn't even feel it because they have sensory issues. So just by giving them a normal stooling pattern, um, the, a lot of the behaviors that we call autistic behaviors diminish um, and, and, and can actually disappear if you um, treat the gut problems. Now, you uh, tell us how people get a hold of you, Brian. How do they get a hold of Dr. Brian Udell, the autism doctor? You know, it's an interesting thing. If I had started this practice 20 years ago, I probably would still have the same five patients a week. But thank goodness there's the Internet. And the good side of the internet is is uh, to uh, is that you can find worthwhile information. Sometimes there's a little too much information. If you if you Google autism today, there are 80 million pages that will come up um, on a Google hit for just the word autism. So parents don't know where to go. But as the autismdoctor.com, I, I and I write a, a blog a week. I write about a one to two page blog a week where I do a lot of research for those blogs. It takes me about five hours to do 100 words. So a 500 word uh, uh, blog can take me 20 or 25 hours to do. And in that blog, I hyperlink to the actual problems um, that have been researched by other doctors. So people can find me on the internet usually by asking any question that has to do with autism and one of the blogs that I wrote will come up. But if they're interested, the autismdoctor.com uh, leads you to me. And, and my purpose of writing that, my first purpose is of writing the blog is to learn. I, I want to be able to answer in an intelligent way all the questions that the parents have. The second is to teach. There is so much information that people don't know, especially my colleagues. You know, recently the American Academy of Pediatrics uh, um, held up the decision by the task force on screening that they didn't have to screen children too early because they were worried that it would worry parents unnecessarily. And my position is the parents are already worried. You're, you're not, they they want to know more information. The first thing many pediatricians will do is they'll say, well, I don't know much about autism. And so the parent can actually know more about autism than the doctor does. The third reason I do it is because there's this polarization of, of, of pro this and against that um, in, in a lot of the literature that you see on the internet. And so sometimes I'm writing just so I can be a, a standard bearer for people and, 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 a, and a sane point of view for all or none. And the last reason I write is sometimes my head's going to explode if I don't say, speak my mind. <laughs> well, as long as I've known you, you don't have any problem speaking your mind, Brian. <laughs> Whether it's here or there or anywhere over in my house, I'll tell you what, it's a pleasure to have somebody who is opinionated based on experience, based on, and you are open-minded. And I agree with you I, I, in that we should screen. Uh, I was a big fan of Ellie Wiesel, who said the best disinfectant for darkness is light. And we're just entering the light age around autism and the different wiring in the brain, which brings me to ask you, it is whether or not you agree or disagree with some of the studies and my personal belief that we are capable of rewiring our brains. There is neuroplasticity. 
there is potential. Not a blow sunshine uh, at your potential, but there is potential for rewiring of the brain. Where does Dr. Brian Udell stand on that? What I'm mostly looking for is what's interfering with the normal wiring. I think when you look at these children, they're perfectly normal looking children. Once you get them healthy, that you can't find anything wrong you know, on the outside. And that if you can fix the outside and fix the inside, you can change the, the, the way that the child responds to their environment. I hear it all day long, every day. You know, it's the first time my kid ate a French fry. Believe it or not, I have pictures of kids who ate a French fry for the first time in their life. Or kids who said, I love you, mommy, for the first time in their life. It's in there. And the parent, usually the mother, is the one that knows that it's in there. It's just not able to come out. And I think that the job that we all need to do is understand that we don't understand this. You have a whole lot of patients over here with different reasons for their autisms. And you have a whole lot of treatments out here that you know may or may not work. And then you're trying to co combine these different treatments with these different children. And it's going to take us years to really figure out this epidemic and get a good handle on how to you know, take these kids forward. But absolutely, I believe with all my heart, even my chromosomal kids, if they have a minor chromosomal problem, even those kids can come out normal. They will go to a normal neurotypical classroom between the first and third grade. And, and, and they may have a little learning problem. They may have a little bit of hyperactivity. But if you go into a classroom today, everybody has a learning problem in hyperactivity. So I don't know that they're different than anybody else. Do you have any long-term follow-up? I mean, because you have such a precious knowledge and experience with children. Does it translate to adults? In other words, we're now, all these little kids have grown up to adults. And what do you have to say about the adults whose brains are a bit different? Frankly, I feel sorry for the adults that, you know, that were that were born 20 years ago with autism. They I, I, with all my heart, I believe that the medicines that the regular doctors have used for behaviors that were unacceptable, Risperdal, Abilify, Prozac, Zoloft, Adderall, Ritalin, that these drugs were 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 invented for specific diagnoses, not for behaviors. And that by giving those kids 20 years ago the only drug that you knew how to give, that in many ways you impeded their regular development. And my longest follow-up right now, because I only started this practice eight years ago, that I, I started 10 years ago looking at the children, eight years ago started treating them, and maybe six years ago started treating them successfully, that my six and seven and eight-year-olds are going to regular classrooms and nobody even knows they have autism. So much so that the, the conventional pediatrician or neurologist will say, well, they must have never had it or they would have outgrown it anyway. And my answer is, well, nothing I did was harmful. Nothing I did was expensive. So what do you care if we gave a special diet or, or a special supplement if the kid came out okay? What I feel about these older kids is I am shocked when I get kids between uh, patients between 15 and 25 years old now and I'm able to get them off the medication that's totally stoning them and get their gut fixed up and get some processing going along in their central nervous system. And it's amazing how happy the parents are that the children can, find, can finally come out of their shell. There is the only thing I've learned 
um, about treating older patients now is patience, is that I had to have more patience. The older patients have a lot more coping skills, and they've had a lot more drugs in their system that have screwed things up. But if I can get them off that and, and, and give them the regular uh, treatments that I give, even the younger kids, I see a lot of great improvement. Well, that's very inspirational, Brian, I have to say. Now, um, sure. in addition to your blog, are there, have you written any books? I just uh, published a chapter in uh, the LDN book. Um, Low-dose naltrexone is one of the treatments that we use. Naltrexone is a pure narcotic antagonist, and it was tried for autism in the 1980s and in a 100-milligram dose. And since about 2006, Dr. Jacqueline McCandice has been writing about using three milligram doses. So I just published uh, a chapter in the LDN book, and my wife doesn't stop telling me that I need to write the, the book on autism. I'm trying. I'm not as good as you are, Hacky. No. <laughs> well, I have to say, you were quite an inspiration and encouragement to me when I was writing the Aspiratools book. And I'm really, really appreciative because you're the real deal. You're there in the trenches. You're devoting your whole life to it. And, uh, and I salute you. If you had to uh, get it down to like one soundbite that you would tell orthopedic surgeons in like a minute or less, because you gave us a good, a good bunch of information before for the orthopedic surgeon, what would your advice be to the orthopedic surgeons as regards neurodiverse patients? I don't mean to be flip, but don't look where the patient is pointing. <laughs> that, that you really need to, live, to do a thorough history and physical and talk to someone in the family that knows the patient so that you get a better idea of what's going on. Just looking and, at a knee and saying the x-ray is fine doesn't mean everything is fine. And, and that is, that's been my biggest um, uh, discovery over the years is it, it's not necessarily where you're looking. Would you have a similar one minute or less for the dentist? Uh, for the dentist, I feel sorry for you guys, but I really think you got to put these kids to sleep when they get in the place because you're not going to get anything done. The children are so scared. I don't blame them. Their oral motor cavity is so full of... Um, a sensory uh, uh, nerve endings, and it's just impossible to talk the kids out of the problem that they're having. And and if you you know learn to use a little bit of mild anesthesia, you're going to do a lot better on these children. What is the specific chromosomal test or tests or menu of tests that a doctor can order for their for these individuals? Um, that's a great question. And, and what happened was 15, 20 years ago, the, only, the main recognized genetic cause of uh, autism was Rett's in girls, Rett's syndrome in girls that requires a chromosomal test, and um, uh, Fragile X in boys that requires a chromosomal test. And for years, that was the standard of what we thought was going on. It t what they really need to order is they can order a, a Fragile X test, that's fine. They can order a Rett's test, that's fine. But the test to order is a chromosomal microarray a full microarray. What is happening to all the other chromosomes 
Um, and we're specifically looking for a, a condition called copy number variation, a small one thousandth of an inch or smaller deletion, duplication or translocation. And if you use a site, uh, the University of California, Davis has a website that has mapped the genes so you can find out what uh, what genes are underneath those chromosomes that might be missing or duplicated. And the Simons Foundation for Autism Research has a website where you can find other children who have been uh, uh, put on that site who have autism and a chromosomal uh, problem. So the, uh, a lot of my children are being given information today, even by the genetics doctor, that we don't know, you know if this genetic problem is the reason for your kid's autism, especially if the parent has, has the genetic problem but doesn't have autism. And my position is that is the perfect storm, that that child who has a chromosomal problem is living in a poisoned environment, and it's that combination that put that child at risk. It doesn't mean it's benign, it, but in my hands, it does mean that it's treatable. Brian, one of the hot-button issues of our time, which I'm trying to get everyone to talk with civility about, is vaccines. I have my own opinion, which I'll say before yours, because you know more of what you're talking about. From my point of view, I see everything as multifactorial. So if you have a certain set of genes in a certain environment, and you eat a certain diet, and you get a certain vaccine at a certain time, the wiring in your brain gets affected differently. That's how I see it. The vaccine is a hot point and a flashpoint in the autism community. I want to hear Dr. Brian Udell, the autism doctor, I want to hear your take on the vaccine. So what I tell everyone is what they're saying, what we're being told by the government is all vaccinations are good for all people all the time. And that would be impossible. That would be the blanket statement that would be impossible. Some vaccines aren't good for some people some of the time. Seems like a much better way of putting it. If you ask a doctor, would he put his child in a study where they did the, the vaccine uh, 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 routine the way they do it now? You get uh, you know, four, five, six, seven things at the same time. If you miss the vaccination, you get them made up. If you're sick, you get the vaccinations anyway. And and if you were sick the last time you had a vaccination, they don't make any change in the next vaccination. That's one group. And the other group is they do it low and slow and they don't do anything that, that where there was a problem before. Any doctor would say, well, of course I'd go in the safe group. And you say, well, if you think it's safe, what do you mean? Which is the safe group? The one the government tells us safe or the one that sounds like it's safe? You're good. You're good. <laughs> and I'm not saying that vaccinations cause it. I ask every single patient. Only 5% of my patients say that they thought it was from the vaccination. Whenever I'm asked by somebody, what do I think? My answer is 5% of my patients think so. 95% of my patients, 90% don't think so. Five aren't sure and five are pretty sure. And the guy's a truck driver. And all of a sudden, the day after the kid got a shot, he was sick and he stopped looking at him and stopped talking. If you want to say that's a coincidence, I got a lot of coincidences. What factors do you think are being overlooked in the general media? and the general autism social media that you feel are important, and you know what, they're just not getting any, any play. 
are there any such issues? Oh, the biggest issue is this this controversy about whether we have more autism or not. That we made that we used to call them something else and now we call them autistic. Because that holds up all kinds of research. It holds up all kind of treatment. Everybody's looking at you sideways because we're not even sure that there's more autism. And my answer to this is that one in 42 boys today, 2% of boys have autism, okay? If it were still the same as before, 2% of men walking around would have autism. And that's just not true unless you ask their wives. <laughs> Very well said. And the, the numbers, that, well, as far as I'm concerned, from my point of view, um, there is more of everything now. What do I mean by that? This is not cause and effect, but this is just Hacky Reitman's observations. In 1985... I fought the first man ever to step into a boxing ring who was over 300 pounds, Stephen Elmore, who tried out for the New York Jets. That year in the NFL, there was one player over 300 pounds, Refrigerator Perry. Today, every high school team has a bunch of 300-pound people. The second thing I've noticed is the Internet happened during that time. What else happened during that time? I mean, you know, if you look at the Internet, again, this is not cause and effect. This is, you know, look, when the printing press came in, it took a couple of hundred years to make a difference. Facebook came in, it took about eight months. Things are moving exponentially. If I don't develop with my brain, especially if I'm a teenager, some degree of um, ADHD, if I don't develop some different kind of wiring in my brain that will allow me to talk to Brian Udell, look at the video, talk to somebody else, read a book, get a text that just came in on my phone, shut off the phone. If I can't do that all at once, I can't function. Whereas back in my day, we would go play stickball for three hours in Jersey City. Nobody would bother you. Maybe somebody had a transistor radio. That was about it. Now it's completely un it's completely interrupted. Now we have all kinds of differences in the food sources. We have all kinds of obesity we didn't have. And no one's going to convince me that if you start adding up all the different neurodiversities, autism, Asperger's, OCD, ADHD, 20% of our kids in public school have some kind of IEP. Um, there's something going on. There's something going on. And I don't want to hold up the research, nor do I want to hold up the resources for these families and people who need it. I was a big fan of the way Comedy Central did their, their night for autism with comedy, which was while we respect and admire the research being done, we want to support the organizations that are giving these people what they need for the actual resources. What's your take on all of that? As I practiced medicine for 25 years in the last century and 16 years in this century now. And there's things that are going on now that I never did. In the first 
two years of life. I can't remember a child that had an ear infection requiring antibiotics. Yeah, two and three year old, but not one, one and a half year olds, nine months old with, with ear infections, uh, getting antibiotics, uh, steroids in our food. There's Prozac levels in our water. They're, they put anti um, uh, asthma medicine for years. Anti asthma medicine was put in all of our meat. There's Roundup in all of our gluten. I don't even know if people are really as gluten sensitive as they are Roundup sensitive. I don't know if Monsanto is doing studies to see, you know, whether or not it's the gluten or the Roundup, but that would be an easy study to do. And you don't see anything like that. So as an old-time pediatrician, I see a lot of differences. And frankly, the major difference that I saw in my life, Hacky, just between us is, you know, in the 1990s, we started putting babies on their front and on their back instead of on their front. And when we put babies on their back, they erp up into their, into their oropharynx and they get ear infections. And then they get antibiotics for their ear infections. I, the price we paid, and we did, we do have less SIDS than we used to have. But the price we paid, I believe, is a lot of ear infections, a lot of the overuse of antibiotics, and maybe some of the autisms that we see. Wow. Well, we've covered a lot of ground today, Brian. We yeah. Have. And thank you very, very much. Um, that's going to bring us to the end of another episode of Exploring Different Brains. We've been talking today with Dr. Brian Udell, the autism doctor, and that's right where you can find him online at www.theautismdoctor.com. And uh, where is your office, Brian? I'm located in Davie, in a very uh, easy place to get to off the highway between Griffin Road and University Road. So you can always find me. He's talking about Davie, Florida. Davie, Florida, yes. We're, we're different we're, countries or states. <laughs> we're down here in South Florida. It's kind of greater Fort Lauderdale. And that's where I am right now, too, in Fort Lauderdale. And, Brian, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. I've learned a lot, as I always do when I talk to you. Thank you very much, Dr. Brian Udell. Keep up the great work you do. Thank you, Dr. Hackey Reitman. We've been talking today with Dr. Brian Udell, the autism doctor, and that's right where you can find him online at www.theautismdoctor.com. For more information, visit us at differentbrains.com.